This morning, we're going to continue in our series in Isaiah 9. Bill was uh, the pack-it-all-in type of guy. Whenever he did something, he had to go all out. Whether it was an addition to his home or a new vehicle purchase, it had to be fully loaded. He had successfully burned through his entire savings and now was draining his retirement accounts. And he's still having trouble paying his debt each, each month. It wasn't the economy or his job. His problem was that his cravings were bigger than his paycheck. And his mind and heart were focused on something else. Bill was raised in a poor family, but he decided that he would have it all and nothing would stand in his way. From one purchase to the next, they seemed to never satisfy. The problem he faced was much deeper than having enough money. Joyce was too excited to get on the plane for the next adventure. It had only been six months since the last adventure, but Europe was calling and she had to go see. Paris, Venice, Zurich, they had to see it all. Her dad had died in the last year and she was bound and determined to see as many countries as she could before she died. From one hotel to the next, she was never fulfilled like she thought she would be, but always wanting more. One more city, one more country, more, one more adventure before they packed it all in in life. The problem that she faced was much deeper than her travel plans. Many of us here this morning live in this world like it's a destination. Whatever is the next big thing or the next adventure, we keep our eyes focused on a horizontal rather than a vertical. Whatever our confessional theology says about eternity, at a functional level, we live as if this earth is all that there is. We live a destination mentality instead of a preparation mentality. An old commercial captured it powerfully. You only go around once in life, so you've got to grab all the gusto you can. If you're not moving toward a glory so glorious that it will overwhelm the pain of anything you suffer, then this is all the glory you will ever get. Don't, don't sit on the sidelines. Don't find any reasons to say no. Pack everything you can into this moment because this moment is all you're going to have. Friends, is this present world your final address? When we treat it as, as if it is, we, we try to get from this world what we can only experience in the next. We try to pack into our present life all the pleasure and happiness and excitement we can, and we continue to fail miserably. We do this because what comes with the thought that this life is all there is is an inescapable fear that somehow life will pass us by. And here's what the destination mentality fails to understand. Our, our complete, present, personal happiness is not what God is working on here and now. Why? Because the plan of his grace is to deliver us out of this world to another world that's much better. Whether we live with eternity in view or not, there is one thing we all need to understand. God always responds to us with eternity in view. God is eternal. He is everlasting. So everything he does is with eternity in view. Can the same be said of us? Do we think like God? Do we have eternity amnesia? When we come to Isaiah 9, we come to a people who had forgotten what God had promised them. People who 
were called by God, given an incredible hope and a future, but their present life became too big, too important, and they leave God. And they call God a fraud for not submitting to their plans. He's a, he's a chump because he didn't give them what they want. And so they're thrusted into deep darkness, he says, and despair. And yet through it, God won't let them go. These faithless people, God will continue to pursue and he will rescue them, even if it takes years to do so. And we may forget God, but he doesn't forget us. The last few weeks, we've walked through the first two names given to Jesus in verse six of Isaiah chapter nine. And this morning, we're gonna continue to look at that verse and look at the third name, everlasting father. And so if you haven't yet, turn with me to Isaiah chapter nine and follow with me as I read. I'm gonna read verses one through seven. If you're using a Bible that's provided, we encourage you to do that. It's on page nine, or excuse me, 536, Isaiah 9, and I'm gonna read verses one through seven. Starting in verse one. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the latter time he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as a day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Would you join me as I pray? God, we come to you, eternal God, maker of heaven and earth. And we thank you that we can come freely, publicly, and that you hear our prayers. Father, we ask that you would help us this morning to learn more of Jesus, to unplug our ears and tenderize our hearts and cause us to be changed by your word, especially the eternal word, Jesus. May we become like your son this morning as we encounter the scriptures and may be glorified in my attempt at preaching. I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. As I have in the last few weeks, it's a very simple outline. I'm just taking each portion of the name given, and so the first one is everlasting. When I sat down to write my sermon on Wednesday, I had two words at the top of my page. Can you guess what they were? Everlasting Father. And when I finished my day on Wednesday, I also had two words on the top of my page. Everlasting Father. My mind bounced place to place in those hours on Wednesday, but mostly found their resting spot on the word everlasting, eternal, never-ending, undying, immortal, or deathless. And I camped there for eight hours. Writing sermons is hard work, and it's supposed to be. Preaching the word is the best job in the world, so if you think you have the best job, you're wrong. Mine's better. But whoever thought it was a good idea to just choose two words to preach on, well, they need to rethink that. 
Eternity is a huge thing to consider. We're surrounded by things that have an ending on this earth. Everything here has a shelf life. Everything has an expiration date. Most food you have in your house will expire at some point. Your vehicle will eventually stop working. Your house won't last forever. Your clothes will wear out and people that you love will die. Everything on earth will cease to exist at some point. It will fade from our view. Everything has an ending and a beginning. Everything except God. God is eternal. We talked about this at VBS, if you were here. God has never had a beginning. He's always been. Isaiah 40, verse 28, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. 1 Timothy 1:17. to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And over and over again, the Bible tells us that God is eternal. You cannot separate eternity from the scriptures like you cannot remove air from earth. A.W. Tozer wrote, the idea of endlessness is, is to the kingdom of God what carbon is to the kingdom of nature. As carbon is present almost everywhere, as it is essential element in all living matter and supplies all life with energy, so the concept of everlastingness is necessary to give meaning to any Christian doctrine. Indeed, I know of no tenet of Christian creed that could retain its significance if the idea of eternity were extracted from it. Moses says this for us in Psalm 90, verse one and two, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you have formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And our minds, though, cannot fathom everlasting to everlasting. We stretch our memories back as best we can to our childhood and try to recall all that we've experienced growing up. And then we try to look forward with our imagination to, to, to what might happen. And then we bail in exhaustion. We can't handle it. We can't bear the weight of everlasting. But God is at both points all the time, and is completely unaffected. God is eternal. God lives in the eternal now. He has no past, and he has no future. And so whenever we read in the scriptures of time about a past and a future, those words are there for us to understand. They're not there for him. There is no time with God. He has already lived all of our tomorrows. We live moment from moment, and we cannot escape it. One moment disappears before the next moment comes. And we tend to believe that the whole universe exists the same way, moment by moment. We tend to believe the same about God, that he's moving moment by moment along our timeline, figuring things out as it comes to him. But that's not true. He's eternal. He cannot be tied down by any time. He is boundless existing at all times and in every moment. And I want to try to illustrate this. This is hard to illustrate, okay? But on Friday, April 14th, 1944, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote a letter to his son, Christopher. Do all you know who Tolkien is? Raise your hand if you know who he is. Let's see my audience. All right. Wrote the Lord of the Rings, right? And so he writes this to his son, kind of a 
what's happening in life. He says this, I managed to get an hour or two's writing and have brought Frodo nearly to the gates of Mordor. This afternoon, I mowed the lawn. It's astounding to me. Seriously, I'm being genuine. That's astounding. Have you read the books or watched the movie, Cheaters? He's writing one of the most famous novels of all time. Pausing to mow the yard. And there's significance in this for us to understand eternity. For Frodo, in the story, there was no putting down the work to go mow the yard. There was no interval. There was no pause. For Frodo, the imaginary character in the story, Lord of the Rings, he was making his way to Mordor on this devastating journey to dispose of this one true ring. And he didn't stop to mow the yard. But his creative maker did. See, Tolkien didn't live in that imaginary timeline at all. Better yet, Tolkien wasn't bound by the time that Frodo lived in. He was free. Between writing one sentence to the next, there could be a long pause. He could have gone back earlier to the story. He could think about the end. The writer isn't bound by the time of the one he's writing about. He's free. He is the creative maker and writer, all-knowing. In fact, I just read this last week on Twitter, which is always entertaining, of another famous author writing an explanation of their story about this character and why they did this. And like Twitter, someone chimed back and said, that's not true, this is what he meant. And someone wrote back, you do know that was the author. They wrote it. You didn't. And I understand this isn't perfect illustration. But to follow through and see the truth in it. But God is not hurried along in the time stream of our universe any more than an author is hurried along in the imaginary timeline of a story. The author is free to do whatever they desire. They're the author. They're the creator. They are essentially eternal in regards to that story. I realize the illustration breaks down because the author, an author writing a story, can break free from one timeline to another, and, but is bound to a timeline. But God is never bound. He doesn't live with any time at all. He is boundless. There is no timeline that restricts our God. He doesn't live moment by moment. He is in 1944 and 2019 at the same time. His life is himself and he doesn't need time. C.S. Lewis has given us a great picture to give us some help. He says, if you picture time as a straight line along which we travel, then you must picture God as the whole page on which the line is drawn. We come to the parts of the line one by one, we have to leave A behind before we get to B and cannot reach C until we leave B behind. God 
from above or outside or all around contains the whole line and sees it all. God doesn't move from A to B. He is above A or around A, around B. God is not bound by time. He is boundless. He's eternal. He is everlasting. Now you can see why I stared at a paper for eight hours on Wednesday. Because I've barely scratched the surface of our everlasting God. And God being eternal doesn't just mean he's not bound by time. It's that he isn't bound by anything. I tend to think that the title everlasting here encompasses all of the titles in this verse. Because he's everlasting, he has all wisdom. Because he is everlasting, he has all might and power. Because he's everlasting, he has complete peace. But how does this relate to Jesus? The Apostle John wrote the last book of the Bible also, and he quotes God the Father, and he says in Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, this isn't Jesus talking. This is Almighty God. God the Father, and he calls himself Alpha and Omega, which is the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. It means that no one can speak of anything before Alpha. There is no before Alpha in the alphabet, but that's not all. There, no one can speak after Omega because there's nothing coming after Omega in the alphabet. And this comparison that God makes is so that we know that there is no before with God and there's no after with God. He is there no matter where you go in all of history and upcoming future. He is the absolute reality. To him belongs all glory because he is gloriously eternal. And this is essentially the meaning of the Old Testament name for God, Yahweh or Jehovah. It's built on the verb to be. And so when we read of Moses asking for his name in Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This I am is shared throughout the Old Testament with Isaiah being a continual reference to the eternality of God. Isaiah 43, 10 and 11 says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. For God to call himself the I am means that he is the first and the last, and there is none before and there is none after. It is simply I am. And Isaiah is even more explicit. In the next chapter, in Isaiah 44, 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And he continues in chapter 48, Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I am called. I am he, I am the first and I am the last. And Isaiah is explicit in his declaration that God is eternal. This is what it means to be God, that there's no ending, there's no beginning, no limits. He is forever. But these references, though, they're for God the Father. So how does this relate to Jesus? Because this is what Isaiah is talking about, right? Later in Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 and 13, he says, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. But then in verse 16, we get clarity on who's speaking. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And in this chapter, this is Jesus Christ talking, not God the Father. Now, two cannot be Alpha and Omega unless they're truly one. 
two cannot be first and last unless they are one. And because they are one, Jesus boldly declares in John's gospel, in chapter eight, verse 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Do you remember what happened in that story? They didn't like that. They pick up stones to, to kill him. And then later in John 13, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And John wrote this for us in his first gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as if the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ, the word was from the father, not made, but living eternally. Two persons standing forth as one God, not two gods. And this is a great mystery, but this is what God has revealed about himself. And it continues, and I had to cut out things in my sermon, just so you know, because there's so much in the New Testament. In Hebrews 1.10, the author writes of Jesus. He says, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Jesus Christ is the eternal creator of the universe. Jesus Christ is the Alpha and Omega. He is the first and the last. Jesus Christ, the person, never had a beginning. The God, he is the absolute reality. He is the author of all life. And because God is the author and we are the subject, he can give infinite attention for each and every one of us. God doesn't deal with us in a large group. He deals with us individually. He knows each and every one of us intimately. In fact, no one on earth knows you as well as God knows you. No one on earth will ever know you as intimately as God knows you. C.S. Lewis says, you are as much alone with him as if you were the only being he had ever created. God is for you, Christian. And once you become a child of Christ, we are his and he is ours forever. Forever. There are no goodbyes with God. And Paul triumphantly announces in Romans 8, what then shall we say to those things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who's at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Friend, nothing can separate you from an eternal God when you're secure in Jesus Christ. And this will never change, friends. And Hebrews 13 says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. 
And, and the author in Hebrews is pointing us back to the book of Joshua in verse five that, that God won't leave us. And this is significant. He, he won't forsake us. But friends, the Greek is even more strong in this text. The Greek in the first phrase is translated, I will never, never leave you. So there's two negatives there. And then the second phrase is even more emphatic than the Greek. I will never, never, never forsake you. So in that phrase, there's five negatives. He is over the top, grammatically just pounding us this morning with the earnestness of what God is saying here. He says, listen, friends, this is what he says. Our eternal God will never, never leave you. He will never, never, never forsake you. It's impossible for him to do it because he said he would never do it. And you can take that promise to the bank. He will not go back on his eternal word. For all of eternity, God will be for the Christian. In your job, in the difficulties that you're facing, in your family, in your marriage, in your health, he will never leave you. And if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, I truly wonder how all of this sounds to you. Maybe a little too good to be true. And your eyes are set on earth, what's right in front of you. And I can't blame you, because that's all you're able to comprehend right now. Friend, have you ever realized that there's an eternity, something that extends past your life here on earth? Do you realize that Jesus is eternal? If you reject the eternalness of Jesus Christ, you are rejecting his deity. The two are inseparable. If Jesus is not eternal, he's not God. Isaiah tells us this morning that Christ coming to earth is the physical embodiment of the everlasting God. And according to the Bible, we have each sinned and separated ourselves from God. We have rejected him by choosing to be our own masters for our own life. And this self-centeredness leaves us open to certain judgment of God. Who will one day at the end of this world and at the end of your life on earth will judge you. We are made in his image and in judging us, he will display his glory by vindicating his character. And we have stored up against ourselves God's rightful wrath against our sins. Wrath that would justly take us down to hell were it not for the amazing love of our God that has come to us in our everlasting Jesus Christ. God the Son took on flesh, became truly human. He lived a perfect life because we couldn't, and he was crucified, bearing God's wrath for our sins. And he died for the sins of all who would repent and trust in him. And God raised Jesus Christ to life in victory over sin and death. And friends, if you repent of your sins, of trusting in yourself and trust in Jesus Christ alone, then you will be saved from the punishment due to your sin, saved from enslavement to sin, and one day even from the very presence of sin itself. 
and you'll be able to spend eternity with God. Friend, Jesus Christ isn't too good to be true. He is true. He is God from eternity past, come to earth to die for our sins. And I would implore you this morning to turn from your sins, repent and believe in him. And I would love to talk to you this morning. I would love to spend my afternoon speaking with you. And I know there's others here, even in your row, that would love to talk to you. And so I'd encourage you to find a friend and to ask questions after the service. And to my Christian friends that are seated here this morning, you should know the gospel. You should share the gospel. Don't hoard it to yourself. Don't stockpile it. Bring attention to the gospel by your life. And pray for us as a congregation that we would keep the gospel the main thing. In every sermon, we want to relish God's bringing himself near to us by the means of the gospel through Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said, a sermon without Christ at its beginning, middle, and end is a mistake in conception and a crime in execution. We want to encourage each of you with the gospel and pray that you would pray along with us that we would train our hearts to feed on it increasingly. We would find our hope and our joy in what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. That's what we should be about. And so pray for that. Pray for that, friends. Encourage us to keep pressing into Jesus Christ. But this is just the first part of the name here this morning. Everlasting. The second is Father. And I recognize that when the word Father comes, it evokes different feelings for different people. Not everyone here this morning happily warms to the idea that Jesus is called Father, that God's called Father. I realize that some of you seated here had wicked fathers who hurt you and abused you. And that using that term causes you to feel sick inside when the term is applied to God. And yet there's still others that are here who have an altogether different view of their father. And Christmas is here. And your father isn't with you. And it hurts. You understand that God is not called father because he copies earthly fathers. He isn't some pumped up version of your dad. And to transfer the failings of your earthly father to him is quite simply a huge misstep. Instead, as, as an earthly father, we're to reflect God, not replace him. It should be comforting then to read in Isaiah 9, 6 at the birth of this child whose name should be called Everlasting Father, that under his care and his protection and his provision, we are safe and will be satisfied for all eternity. But this term here, and maybe you were stuck on it this week or even this morning, this term father is applied to Jesus. And it's intriguing because usually it's only applied to God, God the Father. You know, there's three distinct persons in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they must be real persons, otherwise there couldn't be any real love between them. If there are some sort of different aspects of one person, it wouldn't be true, wouldn't be right. So it's important 
for us to, to keep the distinctions clear in our mind. They're distinct persons. So even how we talk about them, we need to be clear. If you've ever heard someone pray, dear father, thank you for dying for us. Or dear Jesus, thank you for sending your son. We, we need to avoid this. They're, they're, they're diff, different, distinct persons. And, and throwing the father and the son and the spirit in a blender is what we call politely modalism by theologians. Or as Michael Reeves calls it, modalism. Modalist, he says, think that God is one person who has three different moods. And this is a tragic belief that strips away so much biblical truth of each person of the Trinity. So we need to avoid this. God is three distinct persons. And is this what Isaiah, though, is doing in 9-6? That Jesus is everlasting Father? Is he mixing him up with, in a blender with God? This is a mood of God? And the simple answer is no. Isaiah is not mixing them up. It's unlikely that Isaiah has the Trinity in mind at all when he says the Messiah will be called everlasting Father. It's not the Messiah's role within the Godhead, but the Messiah's character toward us that Isaiah has in mind. Sam Storms calls it a descriptive analogy pointing to Christ's character. He is fatherly, fatherlike in his treatment to us. So it's important for us to understand what Isaiah is saying and calling Jesus Father here and why he's calling him. There are a few ways we can understand Jesus being called Father. There's many, and I, I can't cover them all, but I had three. First, he is father in our representation. He is the second Adam, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49. Paul says, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Adam is the father of all living. He is a representative, our father in that, in that regard. He stood for us in the garden and all fell in ruin because of his sin. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, is the other representative for man. Spurgeon says, generation makes us sons of Adam. Regeneration acknowledges us as the sons of Christ. In our first birth, we come under the fatherhood of fallen one. In our second birth, we enter in the fatherhood of the innocent and perfect one. In our first fatherhood, we wear the image of the earthly. In the second, we receive the image of the heavenly. So Jesus Christ is called Father because he is Father and representation of all Christians, the Father of Christianity, where divine grace reigns. He is author and finisher of our faith. Second, he is Father in love. And when he writes Father here, it's, it's a word of tenderness. He is a Father who cares deeply for his people. And we heard it this morning when Pastor Ryan read Psalm 103. Verses 13 and 14 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Jesus is a father full of compassion for his people. That's why he came. You read about it all through the Gospels, that Jesus heals people, and he sees that they're without a shepherd, and he, he feeds people. And Jesus is a compassionate Savior who shows love to the least of these. I know I said this earlier. There are some I recognize who struggle with the term father because they only see the failures of their earthly father. And I'm in no way excusing the sin that's been done towards you. And it's possible that the term father just conjures up fearful and dark images of anger and abuse. For you, that, 
maybe is what a father is, but don't let that man's sin sway you from the truth of the scriptures. In Jesus, we see a different way, a different father. When we read a father in the scriptures, we read as someone who is perfect, who is completely protective, who is caring with complete compassion. He is the ideal father who never turns his back on you. He never withholds love for you. He's never fickle with compassion or comes to you with strings attached as though if you cross him, he'll take away his love. He knows you, friend. He knows all about you, Christian. He knows your rebellion and sin, and he still loves you with an everlasting love. He loves you in your mess, in your confusion, in your mistakes, in your disobedience. In Jesus Christ, we have a perfect father in love. He is a father to the fatherless. There are absolutely no orphans in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. His love never runs out. It never bails, never holds you hostage, and never withdraws. He loves you with an everlasting love. And the last way I want to share that he's our father is he's a father in adoption. In Jesus Christ, we become children of God. That thought should just blow our minds. In Jesus Christ, we become children of God. Jesus fathers us through the gospel because we are brought into the family of God through his sacrifice of our sin. In Galatians, Paul so beautifully says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so you are no longer slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And this is a Christmas passage right here. At the right time, God sent forth his son so that we might receive adoption as sons. And when we're born into this world, we're born as wayward children with no home of our own. We're, we're all orphans because of our sin, alienated from God. And Jesus came to bring about our adoption as sons and daughters. That's why I love to hear about adoption in our world. And when a child is adopted in a family, they, they call this their gotcha day, right? And listen, friends, when, when you turn from your sins and trust Jesus Christ in salvation, that's your gotcha day in the Lord. John says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And if you're here this morning, you are legally adopted into your family that you live now, you need to understand that when people see you in this church, when I see you, you're a picture of the gospel. My heart leaps for joy when I notice you because your very existence in this church family is a bright, beautiful picture of what Jesus Christ did for us all when he brought us into the family of God. And that should be the same for all of us, to recognize that. 
What an astounding thing to consider that we are children of God. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. Are you not astonished, Christian? Once rebels, guilty of sin, choosing our own way, now redeemed with privileges that are set aside for Jesus Christ. We are heirs of God, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. That should astound us. And I recognize that our earthly fathers will leave us one day. They are not eternally existing here with us, and nor will we. But God, through his son, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, he took on limitations. The infinite became infant. He did this so that we could, he could bring us into an everlasting relationship with him. One theologian observed that Jesus takes away our guilt and opens, again opens the way to God's fatherly heart. Everything you've dreamed a father could be, everything you've longed for from your earthly father finds, it, finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He displays what a father is. Your Messiah is your forever, forever father. Spurgeon said, there is no unfathering Christ and there is no unchilding us. He is everlasting a father to those who trust in him. And so Christian, you will live in eternity with our everlasting father. But we're not there yet. And I need to ask, how many days do you have left? That's a morbid question, isn't it, Jeff? How many days do we have left? And what kind of life do you want to live with these remaining days? Have you ever thought, what will my life look like from eternity? Looking back, looking down. You know, I had a very productive week this week. I read an entire book by Leo Tolstoy. I've said the name wrong. Leo Tolstoy. Do you know Leo Tolstoy? I can't even say it right. <laughs> Not War and Peace. That just landed really flatly. He wrote a number of short stories. And one in particular was called, How Much Land Does a Man Need? 20 pages long. It's a short story of a Russian his name is Payam, and his family and Payam is tempted through a conversation to dis discontentment with some of the worldly circumstances. The devil decides to, to give him land enough, and it's on this last word that the story hangs. And Payam goes through great toil and struggle to move his family in order to buy some land. Then becoming discontent with the land, he repeats the process. And in the story, the cycle of work and attainment and discontentment continues. Over and again, the short story, Pam is looking for more. And finally, one day, he hears of a tribe that's selling land in the most unusual way. And the tribal chief tells Pam that the tribe will sell him a land at a price of 1,000 rubles a day. When Pam asked for an explanation of these terms, the chief explained that for 1,000 rubles, a man could get land by covering as much ground as possible between sunrise and sunset. All of the covered ground would be his so long as he returned to his starting point before the sun went down. And Pam was delighted, could barely sleep the night before as he anticipated all the hundreds of acres that he was about to own. And he thinks, what a large area I could mark off. I could easily go 35 miles in a day. And the next morning, Pam 
set out early to cover much ground when the sun came up. The chief said, see all of this, as far as your eyes can reach, is yours. You may have any part of it you like. Pam's eyes glistened as he spoke. He, he included this bit of land as he, as he walked and, and that bit as he walked on, urging himself along with the knowledge that, that, that the faster he moved, the more land he would have. And as you guess, as the day wore on, Pam wore out. His appetite for more land, though, never decreased. How could he turn around now, he thought. People would think less of me if I quit too soon. And with every fiber of his being, he worked to get every inch of land that he possibly could. And he makes his way back, and he finally reached the place from which he began, just as the sun was setting, and he made it. The tribe gathered around him, cheering and exclaiming, and suddenly Pam fell forward toward the chief on the ground. Ah, what a fine fellow, exclaimed the chief. He has gained much land. Just then, his servant came up running to Pam because he saw blood flowing from his mouth, and he wasn't moving. He tried to raise him up, but he found that Pam was now dead. The tribe members clicked their tongues to show their pity. His servant picked up the spade that Pam used to designate his land and dug a grave long enough for Pam to lie in it for all of eternity and buried him in it, six feet from his head to his heels. That was all the land that he needed. Pam lived with one life in view. What do you think his life looked like from eternity? How easily satisfied he was in gaining something that could easily be taken away. How easily are we more like him in our lives? 2 Corinthians 4 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. God's desire is for us to keep our eyes on the eternal. Satan's desire is for us to keep our eyes focused on the temporal. He wants us to focus on what's seen rather than what's unseen. The things that are seen are transient. They're like mist. Here today and gone tomorrow. Have you lost sight of eternity? You know, the stories that I shared at the very beginning, those two individuals lost sight of eternity. They tried to live for the here and now, thinking that this is the destination. And many of us, if we're honest, treat the right now as the destination. Whatever we believe confessionally, Functionally, we live as if we believe in no eternity. We have to live now. We have to get all now. This is it. What kind of life are you living right now? Do you have eternity amnesia? Does your life right now reflect that you're living for eternity? Does your life look any different than your unbelieving neighbor? 
What will your life look like from eternity? I encourage you, friends, to lean into Jesus this morning, to ask him to change our view of our lives, to recognize that there's more to this life than what we see, and continue to live our life in a way that honors and glorifies him and looks forward to at last pass this life. Let's pray. Everlasting Father, who reign knows no end, whose wisdom is unfathomed, whose compassion overflows, thank you for giving yourself to us in Jesus Christ to make us children of God. How blessed we are that you have made us your own. God, we ask that you would call more people into salvation, even perhaps this morning. That people would understand the futility of living life away from you and come humbly before your throne, seeking to be saved. Father, I pray for us, your children, to bring us to a place of repentance for those that have forgotten about eternity, that we've gotten caught up in life in a pursuit that will have no lasting evidence once we're gone. Help us to turn over the reins of our lives to the Lord Jesus to his rightful rule, your kingly reign, that we would rightly trust in you alone. Help us, remind us of eternity. Keep our eyes focused on you and not ourselves. Help us, God, to live for you this week. And we pray this for Jesus' glory alone. Amen.